hello and welcome to this live Q&A with Toby Orn. Um, as I'm sure you guys know, Toby is a philosopher at Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute, where he works on the big picture questions facing humanity. Toby's earlier work explored the ethics of global health and global poverty. This led him to create Giving What We Can and co-found the wider effective altruism movement. His current research is focused on avoiding the threat of human extinction and safeguarding a positive future for humanity, which he considers to be among the most pressing and neglected issues we face. He addresses this in his new book, The Precipice. So you can submit your questions um, in your name or anonymous, anonymously using the box to the right hand side of this video. You can also vote for your favorite questions to push them higher up the queue. Um, and we'll try to get through as many as we can um, in the next 45 minutes hour. So I think the uh, obvious first question uh, here is, so the big update since last year is the precipice. So uh, what updates do you have for us on how that's gone? Um, and what are your sort of broader aims for the book? Sure, hi. Uh, um, yeah, I've been, I've been working on this book for, for quite a while. Um, uh, in fact, since uh, last time I, I went to an EA Global San Francisco, uh, I, I looked through my old emails and realized that it was just a couple of weeks after coming back, um, I think four years ago, uh, that I uh, uh, decided to uh, start writing a book uh, and have uh, been you know, working on that uh, ever since. Uh, and uh, I was really excited for it to, to come out uh, in March. Um, it was going to be launched at uh, EAG San Francisco again, uh, but, uh, but unfortunately, uh, that got cancelled, so uh, it was a little bit more complicated. Um, and uh, you know, launching a book at a time when all the bookshops are closed is a is a bit of a challenge. Uh, but it's actually gone gone pretty well. Um, uh, obviously, everyone was also panicking uh, about uh, the pandemic that hit us. Uh, but after a little while, once the panic subsided, I think that you know the, the extra interest and belief that there really are risks that could threaten us um you know is, is probably going to be helpful in having the messages of the book uh, connect with people um and uh yeah it, and it it's uh it's been received very well uh it's got uh, it's been reviewed in the uh the new yorker and uh, um uh quite a few other places uh and seems to be as, as good a reaction as as one could hope for although I, I expect there'll probably be some pretty critical reviews that will come out uh, at some point um uh, and uh, and yeah, it's, it's selling well, and I think the the message is is ultimately going to get out to a lot of people. Um, but I, I'll probably do uh, a big kind of uh, extra range of launch things uh, when the paperback version comes out in a year. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, ultimately the, the kind of purpose of the book, um, I mean, it has heaps of purposes. Uh, one of them is to try to uh, improve upon these ideas, uh, and I've certainly been thinking a lot about. Uh, existential risk and trying to kind of take it back and, and work out what's the best definition of existential risk um, and uh, simplifying a bit from, from Nick Bostrom's definition, but keeping the, the core elements, which I think were correct. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, improving the, the state of the art and summarizing the state of the art across a lot of different domains, uh, but also trying to, to bring it to a wider audience uh, to try to uh, think that this could be the vehicle through which this idea goes, goes big uh, in the world. Um, and then also, as part of that, I was thinking a lot about the framing of existential risk. And that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time on, uh, trying to make it so that uh, that this was a topic that uh, that everyone, I mean, ultimately, it's something that, that really does affect everyone. You know, uh, everyone in your, say, your extended family, if you imagine them all, uh, has a stake in the complete destruction of humanity and the, you know, the undoing of every project that humans have ever been working on. Um, and yet somehow it's often been phrased previously in a way that's, that's quite geeky um, and that only, you know, really appeals to people, well, mainly appeals to people of a certain kind of bent. Uh, so I was trying to, to stop that and try to make it less contrarian um, and more kind of obvious and natural and clearly important. Um, and part of that was actually just noticing also that, that we tend to think of it kind of beginning with Nick Bostrom's work in, uh, in 2002. Uh, but there's, you know, there's been a longer history, particularly with the anti-nuclear war movement, mm -hmm. uh, and to try to really see that they were the, the roots of the idea and to see it kind of growing out of that naturally uh, and kind of charting a bit of that history and so on also helps to make it a bit more grounded and to make it less like it's some kind of strange ivory tower thing and more the kind of thing where we've seen millions of people on marches um, protesting against uh, the, the possibility of the world being destroyed with nuclear weapons and that we can see that it really can go big 
Um, so, so really thinking about a lot of those aspects and then some of that aspect about the framing, I think is very useful for, um, for EAs as well. I think there's a lot of aspects uh, that are very useful for EAs uh, and that it's, this is not a book where it's, uh, you will already know everything in this book. Uh, this is a book that uh, uh, certainly if you did know everything in this book, you should have told me about it because I learned a lot of things uh, while researching it and also while writing it. Uh, and uh, I guess the other thing to say about it is if, if you read it, um, uh, I would recommend, it's, it's one of these things in, in uh, this kind of book, you've got to have endnotes instead of footnotes. Um, and that can be really annoying. But the secret is you just have two bookmarks. You have one at the back and uh, one where you're up to. And then you can just flip back and forwards easily every time you, you see some kind of interesting little uh, thing that you want to find out about. I mean, absolutely. It's almost like two books. Um, that's how I read it anyway. Um, in terms of framing, it also um, you also struck kind of a hopeful tone. Um, mm -hmm. um, yeah, how did you incorporate that and how did you message test as you went along? Yeah, um, so... I'd, I'd thought about this quite a bit when, when I was thinking about what would a book need? You know, what would the, be the best book on existential risk look like before writing it? And I realized that one, one issue is that we talk about existential risk and we talk about, say, existential risk reduction or something like that, which is a bit of a double negative. Uh, and uh, it struck me that it's a little bit like, say, the environmentalist movement, um, if it was only talking about pollution. Um, and if it had called itself, say, the pollutionist movement, um, I'm not sure it would have taken off as well, or, or the extinctionist movement, which is the other aspect, a kind of lack of biodiversity. Uh, and it's true that pollution and extinction were a key aspects of environmentalism. Uh, they're the key challenges that they're trying to overcome. Uh, but, uh, but they also worked out the positive framings of these things, um, how to talk about, you know, they called it environmentalism, and they striving for the thing that they were trying to protect. Um, and so I thought a lot about that um, and still ended up using the, the main kind of the, the phrase existential risk occurs on the cover and so on. Um, but, uh, but trying to think a lot about what is the opposite to existential risk? You know, what is it that we're trying to protect? Uh, and that way you can get kind of, you, you can avoid double negatives when you're actually talking about what we're trying to do. Uh, and ultimately, I think the answer is that we're trying to protect uh, the long-term potential of humanity. Uh, and so the idea there is roughly that you could think of all of these different futures that are currently open to us um, and in this kind of branching space of possibilities. And I think that there are a huge number of kind of trajectories through this space uh, that humanity could take um, if we were to choose to do so. Uh, and, you know, there's a really vast number of possibilities. Uh, if we were to go extinct, there's just kind of one possibility. There's no more choices. There's just one, you know, world without us that just evolves without any choice. Um, but, uh, and if we were to say, have a permanent collapse of civilization, an unrecoverable collapse where no more kind of choices could get us out of it, uh, then that would be something where there was still some multiple futures, but a very narrow range of futures that were all very bad. Uh, and so the potential of humanity is something like the value of the best futures that are still open to us, uh, that are still achievable. And uh, what we want to do is protect that potential from things that could, uh, you know, irrevocably uh, uh, lower it. Uh, and so, uh, so that that I was thinking about that a lot, and also about uh, the fact that that's there's so much good that could happen in the future that we're trying to protect. Whereas a lot of people get very depressed about the future. They tend to think everything's getting worse all the time. Uh, they're not aware of when you try to actually measure that. Um, it's quite hard to find things that are getting worse all the time. Uh, and so, uh, so to try to kind of show that because things are getting better, that there's, there's a lot uh, to protect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only example you can kind of think of is maybe animal welfare. Yeah, um, animal welfare, some aspects of the environment, um, mm -hmm. for example, uh, various aspects in richer countries are now getting better, like air quality, uh, but, uh, but carbon dioxide emissions um, are still going up or plateaued. So, yeah. uh, so that's another one. Um, I'd be really interested to hear um, which aspects of the book did you find people agreeing or disagreeing with most and, and was that surprising to you? Yeah, uh, well, one thing that I was, I was somewhat surprised by, uh, the, the final chapter of the book is about uh, the, the future that we could uh, you know, possibly reach. It's about our potential. You know, what is this long-term potential we're trying to protect? What, what kinds of things could we achieve if we get through uh, this difficult time uh, this time of risk that I call the precipice. And I, I, I kind of divide it into three different areas. Uh, the, the huge duration 
over which humanity could live. Um, the vast scale on which we could operate, uh, perhaps across the galaxy or, or, or beyond. Uh, and then also the fact that the quality of our lives over this time and space uh, could be much higher. Uh, and interestingly, uh, I thought that the quality one was much more hit and miss. Uh, I think a lot of people like the duration appeals to most people. Um, the scale appeals to some people and not others. Uh, but I do think it's probably very important, if, even though a lot of people are unmoved by it. Uh, and the uh, uh, and then the quality, though, I thought, because it ultimately potentially involves moving beyond the range of normal human experiences uh, to to things that are much you know very different and hard to think about. Uh, that that a lot of people would just think that that was crazy or something. But strangely, almost everyone seems to like that bit. Uh, and uh, I was quite surprised by that. Um, another aspect that a lot of people are surprised by is uh, the section on climate change. Uh, and that's one which is, is tricky. I think people are often surprised in both directions. Um, there's people who say, how on earth could you say the risk is so small? And people who say, how on earth could you say the risk is so big? Uh, so I've definitely got a lot of that. And in fact, when people look at me kind of puzzledly about that section, I then have to ask them <laughs> which way they're complaining because I'm not sure which way it will be. Um, but that's something where I think that traditionally among people looking at existential risk and EAs uh, that we've underrated this issue. Um, uh, but uh, by, the, by the same token, uh, the, the world at large has quite a few narratives that suggest that, uh, that you know, it's almost certain that we would go extinct or lose our long-term potential due to climate change. And that's not true at all. It's quite hard to, to find ways in which, it's easy to find ways in which it could be really terrible. Um, and that some of these terrible things could be very long lasting, but it's difficult to find ways in which they could be permanent or that they could, uh, you know, close off any ways of fixing them. Uh, so, you know, that, that's how that one works out. Yeah. Um, and then a the question we've got in, um, has, uh, this current situation, so the current pandemic, changed the way you present any of the ideas in the precipice? Yeah, it, it has a bit. Uh, so one aspect there is that uh, it, it helps to show that we're still vulnerable um, to catastrophic risks. And I think that a lot of people had, had kind of assumed that we'd become invulnerable. Um, for example, they, they noticed that we've, we're doing a lot better against endemic disease. Um, uh, and they had assumed that therefore we'd be doing a lot better against pandemics um, or epidemics. Uh, but because there are a whole lot of things of modern society that make those worse, um, such as increased you know, travel and uh, uh, living in denser locations and so on, it's less clear. Uh, and so it was useful to, to help you know, people realize that. And people often would say that this is you know, this unprecedented situation that we're in now. And it's, you know, I had to kind of explain it's not unprecedented. This is actually the historical norm um, and it's been much worse in the past. It was worse in 1918, and it's, uh, it was much worse in, say, the Black Death, uh, where about uh, one in 10 people in the whole world were killed uh, in one pandemic event. Uh, so it has been a lot worse. In fact, it, it's very precedented. And we'd, we'd, effectively, we'd just assumed that we'd, in an unprecedented manner, got to a point where we were protected from this kind of thing. And, but that wasn't true. And actually, it's not unprecedented at all. Um, so that, that's different. But I also found that with that, one of the things that it's helped the most with is not that we've learned something new, uh, because the experts predicted, you know, reasonable probabilities of a SARS-like thing uh, turning into a pandemic. It was, in fact, if anything, seems surprising that, that SARS-1 didn't turn into a pandemic. Uh, so that's not that surprising to the expert community. Um, but something about seeing it happen helps kind of switch over between the, it's just, you know, I, I've heard this thing and I, I've, you know, I've seen some paper that says that it is likely and give some number that they've calculated out. Uh, it's another thing to really feel it. And so I think it's helped a lot of us kind of feel that vividness. And that's something where, um, uh, where you often, uh, we often lack that. And we have these, these biases that make it difficult to take something seriously when, you, when you're not struck by the vividness. Um, so I think that's a really important thing to take advantage of and to, to really feel that and not just to feel it that we're vulnerable to a particular kind of respiratory pandemic, but that uh, we're vulnerable to big changes, the types of things that you in 2019, you know, so many things we do now would have just been thought to be unthinkable. Um, and to, to note that, yeah, things can get really shaken up really quickly. Mm. So uh, kind of on a related point, so you mentioned um, international collaboration as a solution to counter this sort of free rider effect um, of X risk. 
Um, how, how can EAs or national EA chapters um, contribute to this, help work on it, accelerate it? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I'm not sure at the moment. Um, uh, that's something where uh, it's one of the areas where I know the least and where I think people in EA in general know the least. Um, ultimately, one of the ideas of the book is to try to, a lot of the focus so far has been on particular risks and, and particular ways we can deal with that risk. Uh, for example, AI risk, and then what could the AI community do about this? Um, and you know, how could we do technical measures? How could we perhaps do political measures, but on a particular risk? And I've tried to, um, to show that uh, as well as dealing with particular fires when they come up, uh, we need to be able to kind of put in place that a um, institutions and just general public concern to have this be a kind of moral issue that we all understand and care about. Because if this is a general priority for humanity, uh, then we can help avoid it always being fighting fires. And we can instead try to steer around these difficult issues in the first place. Uh, so if you take something like um, uh, nuclear war, uh, then about 40 years after we developed nuclear weapons, there was a massive grassroots movement against nuclear war. And the same with climate change. But, you know, it takes a long time from the point where it's become a serious problem. It takes decades before you get that kind of concern. And that's why I think we need to generalize that to existential risk overall. And that, uh, uh, that for example, if we could set up some UN body uh, on existential risk, that could be an example of an institution uh, that could help to try to coordinate different different actors um, in different nations uh, to dealing with it. But I don't know exactly what that should look like. And so I think there's a, there's a real space there for these types of answers, um, but a lack of understanding at the moment where most of our understanding is on particular risks. And we need to, to think more about, um, about these big institutional questions. Yeah. So, I mean, you've obviously thought a lot about this in the process of the book, but how long have you been working on um, X-Risk more broadly? Yeah, uh, actually for a long time. Uh, the uh, I came to Oxford from Australia in 2003. Um, and then uh, uh, about a month later, uh, I met uh, this guy, Nick Bostrom. Um, and uh, my supervisor was like, oh, this, you know, from what you're saying about all of these things, you really should talk to this other guy who's just arrived. Um, and uh, so we, we met up and, and talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, I think very early on, moral uncertainty was one and uh, also uh, existential risk. Um, and so ultimately I've been thinking about existential risk for about 16 years. Um, and uh, Nick had just published his paper um, introducing existential risk uh, the year before. Uh, so, I, I it was still a student, carried on, did my, my studenty things, um, but had been thinking about it for a, for a very long time. Uh, and uh, I've, I founded uh, with, with Will, um, uh, Given What We Can, in 2009, and that was a big focus of mine and global poverty. Uh, but I was also aware that, you know, from, from, from that time period, uh, that existential risk was another really big issue. It, it struck me that it wouldn't be able to motivate people in the same way. Um, and so I kind of kept it on the back burner and kept giving what we can primarily focused on poverty. Um, but we found that once we set that up and, uh, and had you know, very positive reaction, uh, that, and also will set up uh, with, with others uh, 80,000 hours, we found that you know, surprisingly people were interested in these general questions about what's the best things that we can do. Um, and they were, they were very interested in existential risk as well as global poverty and animal welfare. Uh, and we realized that that there were people more interested in this abstract notion of, of doing good as well as possible instead of like working on a particular cause as well as possible. And so we, we uh, you know, then actually started leading with effective altruism rather than having that be the thing in the background. Uh, and there was kind of more interest in this. But ultimately, I kept working primarily on global poverty and global health uh, for quite a while after that, till maybe 2015 or something, by which point I've been mainly working on existential risk. But so it's, it's, it's kind of been for ages and it's been there uh, in the background ever since the, the start of effective altruism. Yeah, so um, I guess you've been at FHI now for, for many years. Um, so what, what kind of regular disagreements do you have um, with other researchers at FHI? Um, yeah, so what are the kind of key disagreements you have within FHI and, and what's your take on those? Yeah, let's see, I don't know. Um, we're actually, I think generally pretty agreeable people um, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of 
it's less that you know one one person says it's black and the other person says it's white and it's more that one person thinks it's overrated and the other person thinks it's appropriately rated <laughs> or you know what one person thinks it's uh it's you know 20 percent chance the other person thinks it's a 50 percent chance or something like that um i guess uh one of them is that uh, uh there's there's still plenty of people around who uh fhi who think the simulation argument um is uh is particularly important uh this was nick bostrom's idea that uh that that one can one can argue, I guess, the simulation hypothesis in particular, uh, that you can argue that uh, that maybe we're all living in a simulation. Um, uh, that is not just a case of the universe is fundamentally computational, but instead it's that there are intelligent agents who are simulating a, a thing of us. Um, I don't find this to be particularly likely or action relevant or anything. <laughs> and my view is that we'd probably be better off if we all just forgot about this. Uh, but uh, uh, but I think I'm you know I'm an outlier on that one. Uh, so, so that's that's something. I can't think of anything else offhand uh, where there's where you know some some particular disagreement that I'm on the other side of. Yeah. So more more broadly than perhaps um, in your view, what's the uh, what's the best position that generally people take? Um, against your position that we should focus, you know, primarily on existential risk, or that it's probably the most pressing problem. Hmm. Uh, can you just repeat that? The, 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 the yeah, best, so the best arguments the best? not focus. Yeah. Um, well, I think. Uh, okay, good. Uh, so one thing is, I don't think that all EAs should focus on existential risk. Um, uh, I think that if they did, EA as it is would kind of collapse a bit. Um, uh, and that it would be the case that we, uh, uh, th these other things that make make it a unique community, um, unique interests uh, to do with the kind of particular focus on evidence and on effectiveness, uh, would would ultimately go away. Uh, they'd be seen as just things that some people do while they're working on existential risk. Uh, and I think that those things are really important to to kind of go big in the world. And become like mainstream things where you know in, in 50 years everyone's saying, well, of course you focus, you know, why, why would you just give wherever you have a feeling would be good and then just be okay with that? That's that's kind of crazy. Um uh, in the same way that maybe we'd think someone's crazy if they say, Oh, I just bought a whole lot of stock from this company because they gave me a kind of warm feeling. We'd be we'd think, uh, we need to have a talk with you. Uh, you could be in trouble. Um uh that maybe we'll we'll start to think more like that about helping others. Uh but so that's one aspect. So I think we should have a, a broader portfolio. Um, uh, and another thing is within the, the kind of long-termist area of, of ways of helping the long-term future, uh, that it's not clear that it should all be on existential risk or that that's the best way to help the long-term future. I think it probably is, uh, but it's an underexplored area. There haven't really been many, many conversations about it. Uh, in general, a lot of a lot of the thinking, I mean, some of the early arguments, for example, um, back of the envelope calculations tend to be an apples to oranges thing where they say, with existential risk, if you avoid the extinction of humanity, we might last so long that it could effectively save, you know, some giant number of lives, even if you kind of lowered the chance by the small fraction, right? But it's getting evaluated over this huge span of time, say a billion years. Uh, whereas what if you save the life of someone who's, who's living in poverty? How many lives does that save when, when thought of over the, the effects of that action over a billion years? Well, it could easily be more than one. Uh, in particular, they may well have a child um, that wouldn't have been born otherwise. Um, so maybe you could imagine there's a chain of people into future generations. Maybe it's like saving one person in every generation. Uh, or maybe it's like um, leading to it always being one seven billionth more people in all generations or, or various other possibilities. There has been very little analysis of things like that in order to get it into an apples to apples course, you know, question where you're comparing long-term effects versus long-term effects. Previously, it had been a bit of a sneaky kind of calculation where it's the long-term effects are considered for existential risk, but not for anything else. Uh, so I think that that, that conversation needs to happen more. Um, uh, but uh, I actually, I do think that the arguments are pretty solid and robust. Uh, and this is something where what some people might think is uh, that it all depends on population ethics. Um, and that for certain views of population ethics where future lives um, don't matter, uh, that, uh, that the argument collapses. Uh, but I, I don't think that it does. Um, I think that that's only true if, uh, if you're a consequentialist 
um, who thinks nothing other than the, the welfare of people matters and the welfare of no future people matters. The only thing that matters is the welfare of presently existing people. I think that's that's a very unpopular view. I think most of the people who have these views in population ethics combine it with something that's that has more in it than consequentialism. Uh, and also they would think that existential risks that are not related to extinction still matter a great deal um, if the people would have existed otherwise but have worse lives, for example. So, uh, but then also there's just a whole lot of other reasons. And in the book, I, I kind of dwell on this in, in, in the second chapter. I think about a whole lot of reasons based on the past why you could care about existential risk and reasons based on thinking about the virtues of civilization. And I think that we've, we've fixated a little bit too much on the total utilitarian case based on the future for why this could really matter. But that, uh, but there's actually a very robust case based on a lot of different views. So overall, I, I do think that it's a, there's, uh, unsurprisingly, I think there's a solid case that it would be exceptionally important uh, if the entire future of humanity was destroyed and we were the generation out of 10,000 generations that dropped the baton and destroyed everything that everyone had been building towards. It seems kind of a bit crazy to me to think no biggie, you know, on that one. Yeah. Um, uh, but I guess you could ask, you could ask questions about, can we really do anything about it? Uh, and, and so on, or how high really are the risks? I know Will's done some interesting thinking to suggest, you know, he thinks the risks are actually substantially smaller than I do. He thinks, I think, I think he thinks more like one in a thousand this century instead of my view of one in six this century. So that could change things a bit. Yeah. So just to uh, jump on that point. So what do you think are these kind of motivating reasons from a non-consequentialist perspective to care about the long-term future? So if you were a virtue ethicist or if you were, um, yeah, you believed in God or something, what, what, um, what are the best arguments there? Yeah. So I think, um, some of them, like the way I break it down in the book is not so much the traditional uh, philosophy breakdown, where in philosophy we say kind of consequentialism, deontology, virtue ethics. Uh, partly because I'm not, I'm not convinced that that is actually the right way to subdivide up the ethical thinking. Uh, but I, I divide it up into kind of things based on the future, uh, based on the present, uh, based on the past, uh, based on uh, virtue, although I'm thinking not of individual virtues, um, a bit of civilizational virtues, and then also based on our cosmic significance. Uh, a lot of the people who've early promoters of the idea of existential risk have been particularly concerned about our cosmic significance, uh, that this might be the only location in the whole universe, perhaps over all time, uh, where we have life um, or where we have intelligent life, uh, and that this may give us special reasons. This may be, for example, the only chance for the universe to ever uh, come to understand itself uh, or to understand, you know, yeah, the, the fundamental laws. Uh, and if we're the only moral agents, um, say if humans are the only moral agents, and we've got lots of other animals who are important in and of themselves, they have intrinsic value, but but they're not motivated by moral reasons. Um, you know, uh, they're not going to go around helping other species of animals because they've realized that it's an important thing to do. Only we could actually make those decisions. Uh, so without us, we'd lose this only upwards force in the universe that pushes towards justice uh, or towards goodness. Uh, so that's an example of a kind of version of this cosmic significance argument. Uh, I also think that it's, it's a useful way to think in terms of humanity. And a big theme in the book is this perspective of humanity. And, and to a large degree, it's a book about humanity, our past and our future and what we can do, uh, and how we're living at a critical time in that story, um, and trying to get people to think about collectively what we could achieve. Uh, and in that, uh, you could think about the fact that humanity, you know, if we take ourselves as this group agent at this larger scale, um, not just everyone alive today, the global perspective, but everyone alive over all time, uh, it, then we can see that we're, we're incredibly impatient. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of not really, you know, if you decided to just announce some plan that we, we have to sacrifice, say, 10% of GDP to avoid existential risk, uh, it, would, it would not be a popular plan at all, even if everything else was kind of worked out. Uh, people are not, I mean, if you, if you said we can't have entertainment television in order to avoid existential risk, that would never get off the ground. I mean, people like it, and as I point out in the book, we spend less on existential risk prevention than we spend on ice cream. Uh, and it's this, you know, we're, we're so impatient and the, the, the issues that, that kind of are affecting just the next five years or something, um, if, I guess if you ask people to divide up into say the next five years and the whole of the future after that, which one's more important? They'd probably say it's kind of roughly even or, or something if you looked at their behavior. So I think this incredible impatience, I think this incredible imprudence as well, where we're not willing to take seriously these, these risks and possibilities of bad outcomes and to hedge against them by preparing uh, because it probably won't happen or something like that. 
um, even though it would be so bad if it did. Uh, so I think that you can see that we really fail to have a whole lot of these things, which would be virtues in the case of an individual, and that it's a useful way to diagnose how our civilization is doing, doing badly. So, and then a final one on, on the, uh, the past, uh, that I think uh, Edmund Burke had this really good idea of uh, this partnership of the generations. Um, so a kind of early, uh, very kind of famous conservative thinker. And, and I think the idea of existential risk is actually a very natural conservative idea. Um, and uh, hope to see it kind of flourishing a bit in conservative circles. Um, but the, he had this idea that if you look around at what we have, you know, if I look at, at, at everything I can see, unless I look out the window, uh, all of these things were created uh, by people. They're, they're not natural objects. You know, they're glasses and, uh, um, you know, greeting cards and computers and desks and so on. Um, and they've been built up over 10,000 generations of human activity. Uh, and we couldn't have done it without these people. Um, there's 100 billion people that have come before us uh, who have collectively passed on their innovations to the next generations and have collectively built everything, almost everything we can see around us. Uh, and that our generation is just kind of one link in this chain. And we pass on our world to the next generation with some additional improvements and uh, some additional ideas that we share with them to help make it better. Uh, and to realize that, you know, kind of just as the kind of no man is an island, uh, no generation is an island either. Uh, and that there is this partnership of the generations without which uh, kind of like a society would actually be impossible. Uh, and then to see from that, that if we were to kind of drop the baton, then we would be the, the first failing generation out of these 10,000 generations uh, and this uh, and losing everything that everyone else has strived to create. And that, that kind of idea is an example that <clears throat> doesn't make any kind of comments about population ethics or something like that. And I think it's very compelling. Yeah, I mean, it's deeply motivating. You don't want to be the one to mess it up for all, all time. Um, I also think if, if, if people haven't read The Precipice, um, I think it's my favorite, I don't know, opening quote of a book. We've got it stuck up in our office. Um, so I won't say what it is, so you go and, go and read it. <laughs> um, so speaking about, you spoke about your differences in views um on it's a risk between yourself and will you put it about one in six in this century um could you highlight kind of maybe where, where the kind of key differences are, are coming from um and also you know do you have do you have differences in views in um civilization recovery so our, our ability as a civilization to recover if we have an event that that sort of um kills 50 percent or 99 percent of people yeah i guess um Difficult to speak too much for, for Will on this one. I'm not sure where he's at exactly at the moment. One of the things that he'd been suggesting previously was that um, just that our prior should be very low on this. Um, uh, one way to see that is that we've had 10,000 generations. And then you might think that the chance that ours is the last generation would be something like, you know, one in 10,000. And there's about, you know, three generations per or four generations per century. So maybe four, four in 10,000, uh, one in 2,500 instead of one in six, something like that. Uh, Will's actually trying to think about the whole future generations as well and kind of link those in and say, well, since there could be so many generations, what's the chance we're at the most pivotal time in history? Um, and then from that to reason that, uh, that the prior should be very low. And so even if we see things that are apparently very risky and apparently could cause these risks, we should be uh, more skeptical of that um, because it would take a lot of evidence to update us. Uh, he's subsequently leaned less on this um, than, than what's written up on the internet. So I'm not sure exactly where he is on that. And I think it's difficult to get that argument, a strong, a really strong version of it off the ground. But we should notice that uh, people have thought that their previous times were critical um, in various ways. Um, and that uh, there's certainly some room for some kind of bias of like, you know, self-importance bias or something like that to thinking your time's the most important. Uh, but I think that that's partly a kind of outside view thing that's motivating him. Uh, he also is uh, is certainly more skeptical than I am about the risks from advanced AI this century. Um, uh, but I, 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 all I know is that he is rather than to kind of put my finger on it. And I think he, he thinks that with various other disasters, it just it's particularly difficult to kill everyone. And then that it's also um, that there are various, uh, like if, if say 90% of people were, were to perish in some disaster, that it'd be likely we recover. Um, I, I agree on that one. I would say, you know, 90% chance or something that we recover from a complete collapse of civilization globally. Um, uh, civilization has been established uh, uh, at least five independent times um, by, uh, by groups who are foragers uh, in different parts of the world. 
So it seems indeed uh, quite likely from what we know that it could be reestablished unless we've totally destroyed our environment. Uh, so I, I tend to agree with some of these things, um, but I still feel that that there are a lot of a lot of risks, um, and uh, such that even when you take those things into account, uh, we're still in a, a very risky situation. So, so in the book, I, I try to give estimates. They're, they're, they're best thought of as order of magnitude estimates on these things, um, where I put something like um, artificial intelligence risk over the century at about one in ten, and um, uh, and uh, engineered pandemics at about one in thirty, um, or you know three percent. Uh, and so that 3% deals with the fact that, or at least it's trying to deal with the fact that there's, there's a larger chance that something very catastrophic would happen, but we recover. Um, and the 3% is kind of of the bits where we, where we can't, or that the thing is so bad um, that, that we have no chance. Um, so yeah, uh, but I guess, uh, I guess we'd need, we need Will to, to get further into that. So looking on the, on the positive side, um, how has the kind of growing EA community, you think, reduced, potentially reduced those existential risks over the last few years? Like, do you think, in fact, we have? Um, and if you think we have, what are the most kind of positive things or exciting things you've seen in the community? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, it's worth noting that we're probably at an early stage of this. Um, so uh, suppose that that you could think of the things that the community does as things that are actively working on reducing risks and then things which are kind of demonstrating that it's possible to reduce risks and are role modeling this kind of behavior and spreading these ideas in a positive way, which helps them succeed more later. My guess is that most of the value that we're having is of that, of that kind. Um, that's certainly the kind I'm trying to have with this book, um, which is also taking into account a large number of insights that the community has generated over that time and sharing them with the world. Uh, so I think that that's the main way we're helping. Uh, when it comes to uh, particular risks, I think that we have done some helpful work with uh, AI risk in particular, and a lot of the focus shifted to that um, around about kind of, you know, in time with, with the deep learning revolution. Uh, there was a lot of like really doubling down on AI as, as a particular risk to focus on. I think that uh, some of the progress people have had in terms of opening up um, AI alignment as an idea and presenting it in a way that AI researchers are at least more amenable to um, has been very good. Uh, the early work on the topic was, was done in a way that was like very different um, to what the people in the field were thinking of and also felt a lot like external criticism, um, which one tends to just shut down from. Uh, but around about the time when Superintelligence was published, uh, uh, it, there was a bit of a turning point, I think, in terms of uh, the, the field itself embracing a lot of these things. And now I think it's it's a pretty mainstream thing. It's not it's not that that most people in AI want to work on AI alignment. That's certainly not true. Uh, but it's, it's it you know it's not unreasonable to to think that this is a really serious issue in AI. Um, uh, and I think that Stuart Russell uh, bears a lot of responsibility for that. Uh, he read uh, Nick's book and then uh, really tried to actually as as a leader in his community to try to change opinions. Uh, so I think that that's probably the area where you know where we've really done the most direct work in this recent time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you, does it concern you or, or is it sort of fine that because it's still quite an early field that there actually aren't that many sort of peer review papers? There's like lots of blog posts and there's lots of books, mm -hmm. well, not lots of books, but a few books, um, but it still hasn't matured that much as a field or is that kind of in line with expectations given um, how early the field is? Yeah, no, I think that that, that is a problem. Um, or another way to look at it, I guess, is, is an opportunity in terms of if, if you like how things are going, then they, they'd be a lot better if we had... <laughs> Uh, you know, honed versions of a lot of the arguments. I've effectively tried to get a lot of that stuff out there in the book um, and uh, uh, as a published version of, of what I think is the very kind of considered version of, a, of an argument. Uh, but I've had to do so while moving quite swiftly through them all um, to try to keep up the kind of possibility of a wide readership of the book. Um, the end notes then kind of get into to things and, and kind of open up cans of worms a bit more. Uh, uh, but we, yeah, we do need more attempts to actually really have like a best version, a best statement of something. Uh, and I think that is lacking. Part of the reason it's lacking is that the fields that we could publish in um, are often not interested or at least initially not interested. Uh, so that it can mean that in order to get the thing published, you have to write a type of paper, say, that appeals to mainstream philosophers about this, um, which ends up just being a kind of like a, 
a weird version of it, you know, where you have to kind of tie yourself in knots to kind of present it in a, in a framing that will appeal. Uh, and then that does a disservice to, to helping build a community because the framing is, is a bad one that then, you know, doesn't, doesn't suit um, the, the research agenda. So it is a, it is a challenge. Uh, and I guess what we've been trying to do at the moment is partly get these ideas out there in a more informal way to kind of pave the way for then writing some papers that are written with the right framings and then kind of push ahead with those. Um, it's, it's, but it's quite possibly something I should be doing um, over the next couple of years is getting some of these ideas out there in journals and so forth. And you think this is something that's tractable that can be worked on and improved sort of from now in the next few years? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I know that uh, the uh, Global Priorities Institute, um, uh, GPI, is doing a lot of work on this. This is one of their, their key ideas is, uh, to some extent, they're like a, um, uh, you know, an academic home for uh, pushing forward with theoretical things around effective altruism. Uh, and taking, you know, they've, they've gone through a lot of these kind of key ideas and then said, what's the current best statements of this? Um, are, you know, are they made in the academic literature yet? If not, let's do a version that really nails it and get it out there. And, you know, okay, what are the, the top 20? <laughs> okay, let's try to do those in a year. Like, you, you know, we'll get a whole lot of researchers to kind of like share them out and try to write these papers and critique them and make them as, as good as possible. So they're really trying to do that. And uh, I think that they've, they've been doing a good job of that so far. I'm, I'm very excited by that. Um, I mean, obviously at some level, uh, it's a mistake to think that because it passes peer review, like a, a version, a paper that passes peer review is somehow better than the, the versions that don't. Um, because just at convincing two people in the field uh, that, that, you know, it's, that they can let it through is not worth that much. Um, but, uh, you know, it's still, it's still helpful and it's also necessary in order to grow the academic community. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, I think it's, it's a really interesting one. Mm. Are there any particular questions which you're excited to see um, investigated more and published? Hmm. Uh, yeah, let's see. I, so things aren't like particular ones aren't occurring to me immediately. I know that when I was writing the book, there were a lot of them um, that came up uh, and I've kind of left various ones in end notes and things like that. And, you know, sometimes suggested uh, that, you know, it'd be great to see a development of this line of thought and so on. Uh, but I can't remember the particular ones offhand. Uh, but in general, I think that uh, at around about the time of superintelligence being published, there was a, a bit of a shift in the community from thinking about existential risk overall uh, to AI risk in particular. Uh, and I think that, that there's very few people looking at existential risk as a cross-cutting issue. Um, uh, I'm you know, possibly the only person full-time doing that. Um, uh, and so as opposed to people who are more specialized in a particular risk or a particular framework or approach to it. Uh, so I, that's something where I think we, we need quite a bit more people thinking more generally about these things um, and noticing crucial considerations that apply to the idea of existential risk. Uh, Nick Bostrom in his uh, 2002 paper actually kind of nailed it. He, he came up with, I mean, some of these had already been in earlier papers, like things like uh, papers by uh, Carl Sagan and uh, Derek Parfit. Uh, but he, he came up with, a, I don't know, like 10 additional really important kind of key insights that were very crisp about existential risk. Uh, for example, that it's a, um, that there's these international coordination issues uh, because it's a, a global public good that you'd expect to be undersupplied by nations um, because the benefits that they produce affect the whole world. So for example, the UK only has 1% of the world's people in it. But so 100, you know, 99% of the people who would be helped by these policies uh, don't live in the UK, so you'd expect a factor of 100 underinvestment. Uh, and then also that it's, uh, you know, it's an intergenerational global public good, that only a small fraction of those people live in our current generation. So you expect even another large factor of underinvestment to help explain to people who are in government why it is that you needed, you know, focused extra attention on this topic. So that's an example of something, you know, he made that point uh, in his paper and, and a whole lot of other points like that, which are not that hard to come up with. Like, you know, uh, you could certainly imagine someone who hasn't spent years thinking about this stuff, who has a whole lot of conversations with people about it and comes up with something like that, or kind of like takes something from another field and notices the idea of intergenerational pub public good when they're reading about environmental economics and then thinks, oh, hang on, that applies over here. And that helps to explain why it's so underinvested in. Oh, great. Uh, and so... I think there's still a whole lot of like these really key insights like that. And every one that we can get is like this extra jewel, you know, that we should be, you know, really striving to find and, and collect together. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because I guess the generous perspective will, will be able to spot those kind of things. How do you think that can that can translate over into um, actually making these things happen in the real world? So uh, impacting policy or impacting mm-hmm. um, yeah, what governments actually do rather than just in academia? Yeah, I, I think um, now is a, is a particularly good time to try to do some of that. Um, I know that there has been work by the kind of existential risk uh, bio community uh, to try to uh, to try to seize this moment uh, where people are concerned about bio risk and to try to make sure that we don't learn too narrow a lesson on that uh, and that we develop biosecurity initiatives uh, which can help protect us from things like this while it's vivid um, that we come up with these ideas um, but that will continue beyond the point where it starts to fade. Um, say, have ring-fenced funding or things like that that will help to preserve the budgets because that's one of the big challenges. Uh, And uh, so that's an example of kind of policy on a particular risk that's kind of coming from this. Uh, There's also perhaps, you know, perhaps people will be more amenable to ideas of things like we need a department, uh, you know, a government department for looking at uh, extreme risks or something. Um, it's a bit harder to get it to directly to existential risk uh, because if, if the thing that you're building on is this pandemic, uh, because then that wouldn't fit under the purview of this new thing. So you couldn't argue that it would have helped with the thing that just happened. Uh, but if it was looking at some slightly broader category uh, or maybe global catastrophic risks would do, uh, you might be able to get something like that off the ground or at least some other kind of you know independent uh, body kind of assessing risks that at a key kind of part of the government that can't be ignored in some way. Uh, so there, there are a couple of ideas. There are also quite a few things that I've been thinking about and, and uh, Will and uh, Tyler John um, of uh, institutions uh, focused on the long-term future of humanity uh, and thinking about this, uh, this, this critique, particularly this kind of democratic critique, uh, that uh, most of the people who are affected by the actions of our governments uh, aren't people who can vote. Uh, they're people uh, who will live in the future. Um, particularly, say, things that have systematic effects on the future, such as uh, how we act about climate change, uh, but also about existential risks uh, other than that. Uh, And there's a real problem there. And it's a very similar problem to the problem uh, about uh, that, you know, we need women's suffrage um, or that we need, you know, people of all races to be able to vote uh, and so forth. Uh, And so that's something where... um, you can't solve it in the same problem because you can't just give the vote to people who live in the future. Uh, but we could well have institutions that have ways of representing them. Uh, so uh, the, the country of Wales, uh, as part of the United Kingdom, has a future generations commissioner. Um, she doesn't have any hard power, but she has kind of naming and shaming powers. And, and they have certain bits of legislation where everyone's meant to be thinking about future generations. Um, I'm not sure how well that will, the, how much that would do compared to what I'd like. My guess is it's about 1% of the way to what would be an actual answer to this problem. It's a little bit like saying the answer to women's suffrage is uh, put a man in charge who has no hard power, who's, who can kind of like complain when other people don't respect women's rights or something where you think that sounds like a, even if it was fundamentally impossible to give the votes to the actual people who are the thing, it's fairly, it really feels like a weak answer to this, this critique. Um, but like a, I think a very simple thing that could be done in the UK um, is, uh, which I, I'm exploring, is uh, some things that could be done with the upper house uh, called the House of Lords. Um, there's been a lot of changes to the House of Lords over the last 20 years um, uh, or 21 years uh, and you know, radical changes to its design, um, unlike, say, the US Senate. Uh, and I think that, that there's things, for example, suppose we said you know, uh, that we need to create uh, 30 new lords you know, new people to sit in the House of Lords to be appointed, um, whose task is to represent these future generations. Uh, I think that that's something which an opposition party could actually go into an election as a manifesto promise um, to try to deal with the rising kind of public sentiment about how we're going to deal with the future and climate change, uh, and then make these new positions. Uh, and it actually is kind of works quite nicely because because the House of Lords doesn't represent constituencies. Um, what's the point of it and so on is this upper house and what's it actually supposed to be doing? A lot of people are like, they think it should be reformed, but they can't really see what it should be doing. But this would be a good answer because it takes a part of democracy or our democratic responsibilities to represent these people who are governed by our decisions, but who can't actually, you know, vote for the person. That's why it would be, say, appointed positions would be the answer is because you can't elect them. 
Um, so I think that, you know, it actually could dovetail quite nicely. And, and you could even go further and say the whole House of Lords should be set up, you know, to, to have that as its sole responsibility. And so I'm interested in exploring these, these types of ideas. And I think that there's some possibility of actually meeting this democratic critique. If the entire upper house of the government were, were there to represent the unrepresentable or, you know, the, the, the people who can't vote, um, uh, that actually would seem very logical from a democratic perspective. And I think that there's a lot of possibility for, you know, for pretty radical change like that. And it's actually less radical than some of the things people are suggesting to do with the House of Lords anyway, such as just completely getting rid of it. Uh, so I think that there's, there's some possibilities for some pretty big changes on, on things like that. I'm interested in learning more about that and also learning more about the international scene, what could be done at the UN and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I'd be excited to see where we are in five years on that, if there is any House of Lords reform. Um, so I think we're coming to the end of the session now. So I guess just the last question on to try and end on a on a hopeful note. Um, yeah, what, what's kind of the one takeaway that you'd want people to have on, on a hopeful note about sort of your work, existential risk, the book? Yeah, I think um, uh, the kind of theme of, as I said, this last chapter of the book uh, that I, you know, while I've said that that my best guess is about a one in six uh, chance that we don't make it through this century. That does mean a five in six chance that we do make it through. Um, so I am predicting that we'll make it through. Um, uh, and I also say that, that that's assuming that we, we try. I think if we, business as usual, it's more like one in three chance. And if we really got to act together, it's more like a 1% chance or something like that. Very small. Um, so the difference between business as usual and really getting our act together is I think something like a one in three chance of existential risk. And this is something where um, the natural risks only comprise a very small proportion of this risk. It's mainly from, uh, from anthropogenic risks, which we induce. And if humanity was unified on this topic, uh, then we could simply stop creating those risks. Um, we could go slow enough that we, we only introduce the new technologies when they've been thoroughly checked. Uh, so I do think that um, while there may still be some fires we have to fight because they've already gone so far along that we can't kind of go appropriately slowly, um, that getting our act together to deal with the future risks by making this a big public concern um, uh, is actually very plausible. Um, and that ultimately, whether humanity prospers, uh, you know, whether we kind of get to fulfill this, this beautiful future that we could, you know, this part of our potential or not, is ultimately up to us. Uh, and uh, if we fail, uh, it's not because something just happened to us from outside. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that this is something where, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of on us. Uh, and we should own up to this responsibility and think in this kind of group way. And I think that that also helps to overcome some of these concerns people might have about pa Pascal's mugging kind of things, where there are ways of framing it when you say, well, how much effect will my next hour working on this thing or my donation of $10 to this group do you know, on this risk? And it's only, it could only be a tiny chance, you know. You know. Um, and then a tiny chance of this huge thing, is it still worth doing? But the same is true when you say, you know, how much impact will it have if I go out in the streets and protest about this unjust thing? Um, if you frame it that way, it's very hard to see and it feels like this weird thing. But if you say, well, if 10% if of the, the public go out and kind of demonstrate, you know, will this create change? You're like, well, yeah, probably will. Um, you know, should they do that? Yeah, I guess they probably should. Um, uh, and so I've been trying to think of it more as like, if humanity kind of gets its act together, you know, how much could it achieve? And you can see that it could achieve a lot. It's not just like a tiny fraction of a percent or something on existential risk. And then that helps to make it clearer that we need to go and do that. So it's a more kind of collaborative way of framing it, which helps to, uh, uh, to avoid getting tied in knots with some kind of like weird incremental version of it. Uh, so I think that that's, that helps us see that, you know, if we really work together, uh, that we really can actually defeat most of these risks and ensure that we have a long and prosperous future. Great. Well, on that collective call to action, uh, thanks so much, Toby, for your time. Uh, that concludes this Q&A. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks. Thanks for having me here.